Pulp MX Network production. Josie's on a vacation far away. Come around and talk it over. So many things that I wanna say. A new view from inside the truck. X racer to racer and eye to eye. A casual look into the personalities of the sport and an experienced perspective into the action from week to week. It's Jason Thomas's Industry Seating. Presented by Pirelli Tires, Fly Racing, Blends All Racing Motor Oil, Works Connection, Plum Creek Funding, 612 Suspension, Fast Foundry, and Pro Glow. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Industry Seating Podcast. My name is Jason Thomas. It is actually Monday, April 25th, and we are on the backside of the Foxborough Supercross. Sorry, I was kind of all over the place. Visited Boston yesterday and didn't get this uh, podcast done, but here we are. I want to thank the sponsors of this podcast. Pirelli Tires has been here since the very beginning. Thank you to them. Guts Racing, Plum Creek Funding, Works Connection, Fast Foundry, Pro Glow Wash, Grant Stone Boots, and Fly Racing, all a part of this podcast, and I cannot thank them enough. But without further ado, let's jump right into this thing, and let's start with the 250 class. And this was kind of the return of Austin Forkner, right? You know, he looked honestly really good at, um, at Atlanta. I-, I was very impressed with his speed going back, you know, nine days ago. Now, the results didn't really work out. You know, a seventh place isn't really what he had drawn up, I'm sure. And you got to remember it was a showdown, so you had more talent in there. You know, throw Hunter and Christian Craig and those guys in there. But he just didn't have that same charge in the main event that I, I saw kind of in, uh, in qualifying practice. Well, whatever that issue was, like maybe it was just rust. Could be, you know, he hadn't raced in a long time. He certainly found that this weekend. And it was an all-day thing. He looked fantastic. In the morning, like I was watching him, Damon Bradshaw and I both commented that I'm name dropping there, but I, I work with Damon and talk to him all the time. So the, the, uh, awestruckness of that is worn off a little bit for me, but I understand how that sounds, but obviously he is a legend of the sport. And he mentioned the same thing that he, Forkner just looked great. Like he was pulling these rhythm sections that other guys were maybe doing once every few laps, like this triple out of the corner before going down the start straight backwards. He was doing that every single lap with ease in qualifying practice and also in the races too, but it really stood out in qualifying practice, how aggressive he was able to be. And when you see guys like that there, you know, even if the the lap times are similar, when you see how comfortable he was at just lap after lap after lap, and he was like really, really aggressive. Like there was no struggling with the rocks or the loose dirt or anything like that like he just looked like he was he was already in the moment and had everything firing when everybody else was kind of sorting things out even jet who is now your champion looked like he was trying to figure things out a little bit and forkner was already like at full speed like he was already at race pace really early and that that really stood out like you could just see it if you were paying attention it was hard not to notice that so is this the return of forkner like is this something we should just expect 
you know, if, when we go to Salt Lake, we see him battling for the win. When we transition to Lucas Oil Pro Motocross, is he back as a title contender? I don't know. I think so, because what I saw the last two weeks, that's the same Austin Forkner I saw from a few years ago. That's not anything close to the same Austin Forkner I saw a year ago, both indoors and outdoors. So I was impressed. I was happy for him. Um, you know, he's been through a lot, injuries and, you know, personal life and all kinds of things. Very fresh. I'm sure he's had a very frustrating existence for the last couple of years. So to see him find some success, for to see him get that confidence back, um, even if I don't know him at all, uh, I, I was happy for him. It was really cool. So good for him. He brings a lot to the series. And really, we need, we need more high-end talent to battle these guys, right? We don't have J-Mart. We don't have a bunch of these guys. So we need the guys that are there and around to be at their best. And Austin Forkner certainly was at his best on Saturday. Jet Lawrence, I mean, he's, he's got a title to win, right? Like, so you don't know where his, his head was in that main event. Like, he did make an aggressive move on Forkner. But then, like, once Forkner got back around him, I think you could see the uh, voice of reason kind of step in for Jet there. And he's like, all right, I made my move. Forkner countered and he, you know, I think Forkner got pissed off because remember Jed and Forkner incident before is what cost Forkner any chance of the season. It cost him a bunch of money and a bunch of races. So I don't think that Forkner was in any mood to play around and he would have gone for the jugular. I, I a hundred percent believe that if Jet continued to press the envelope and try to make aggressive passes, Forkner would have just ended him or tried to anyway, right? You never know if it's going to succeed or not, but I think he would have foregone any caution and just said, okay, I'm done with you, dude. Like you already hurt me once you're getting aggressive again. It's time for you to go down like that. That's what I truly believe. And I think jet understood that in the moment. Like I think he was, you know, situationally aware enough to realize that's kind of what was going to happen. And he just backed it down and he didn't try to make any more moves. And yeah, Forkner wins the race. Jet wins the title. Everybody lives to see another day and, and we move on. It was kind of the I think the rightful way for things to go considering the injury before and how that how bad that all sucked for everybody involved. Forkner gets a win, Jet gets what was coming to him and and off we go. And now, you know, we'll get another showdown race in Salt Lake they can sort that out and then outdoors maybe they have some some great battles this summer, but I, I thought that was really smart by Jet to understand that, okay, I, I gave it a shot, right? I, I, he wants to win, of course, and it's a lot more money to win. He probably left 30, 40 grand on the table by not winning. But there was a big picture in play. And also, you have to understand the mindset of Austin Forkner, who you're racing against. Forkner had nothing to lose. And you know he's still bitter at Jet, like deep down, whether that's on the surface or not. As soon as Jet makes an aggressive move, boom, that bitterness and anger and deep-seated distaste for that Arlington incident comes right back to the surface. Like that's just how this works for these guys is they try not to think about it. They put it out of the back of their mind, but all it takes is one move like that. And we're right back to Arlington in a heartbeat. So um, long-winded explanation of that, but that's kind of how I saw it where Jet was like, I don't really know that I want to poke the bear here right now. Like maybe, okay, outdoors, whatever, every, anything goes, new series and all that. But right now, just, yeah, I'm just going to back away from this one a little bit. And, and Forkner's riding incredibly well, and, and he's just going to win this. Now, if Forkner was struggling 
way off the pace, fading, anything like that, I think you would have seen Jet go for it. But Forkner wasn't. He was strong. He was fast. He was ready to take the fight back to Jet. So you ha- like that's why I say that situationally aware thing is it's really important. You have to kind of assess as you go and make decisions based on the information that you have coming at you. RJ Hampshire, I mean, good grief. Like, you know, he wears fly racing. He's a Florida guy. I've known he and his family most of my life. So, of course, I cheer for him. But, man, he's scary to watch. Like, I just, I'm almost waiting for him to crash. And that sucks. Like, I don't want to see him crash. I don't want to see him hurt himself or, you know, put himself in danger, any of those things. But I'm waiting for it. Like, literally, I'm watching him going, man, I probably shouldn't look away because something's going to happen here. And I know he wouldn't want to hear that. I don't like saying it. But unfortunately, that's just reality for me, for me right now. That's how I feel when I'm watching the races. Like, man, I should probably watch RJ because something crazy is going to happen. And it doesn't matter if it's qualifying practice, the heat race, the main event, the LCQ. It doesn't really matter. He, is on the, he makes me on the edge of my seat. And he seems like he's on the edge of control at all times. Pierce Brown. Solid, right? I mean, that was a really good ride. He led a bunch of laps, and I think he did a good job in the press conference of kind of explaining, like, this was a positive. You know, okay, I didn't beat Jet or Austin Forkner, but I am getting better and better. And I talked about this on the uh, Fly Racing Racer X review pod yesterday, that for Pierce Brown, he was in a really precarious position coming into the season. Because if you look at the guys that he like the, the graduating class of guys that he was around, you know, Joe Swall was an example I gave, but there are a lot of guys, you know, Styles Robertson is kind of in that group too. Uh, Seth Hamaker in that group. Like there's a bunch of guys that haven't cemented themselves as, I don't want to say can't miss, but like if, if you're a team and you're looking at these guys, you're looking at Joe and some of these guys going, I don't know, maybe, maybe we keep him. Maybe we don't. What else is available? You know, are they willing to sign for cheap? Then maybe it's worth it. But I think Pierce Brown has elevated himself above that. And that's really important because you go from maybe I have a ride, maybe I don't, to I definitely am going to get re-signed. And maybe I'm going to get decent money out of this thing, right? Like your, your level of demand has shot up. And now you're probably getting multiple offers and then, of course, when you get multiple offers, guess what? Your price goes up. And, these, you know, these guys are, they don't have any other career. They're not, they don't have an education. They don't have any other way to make money long term. So they got to do it now. They got to figure this out. They need to make a lot of money. And driving your price up is, <laughs> I mean, how else are you going to do it, right? So I thought this was an incredibly powerful season for Pierce. And he was a guy that I was worried about. I didn't know how this was going to go. He's on a factory team, a factory bike, all those things. And if you can't get it done there, other teams look at you and go, well, how's he going to get it done here? You know, and that's a really tough dynamic. Um, so that's the, the positive for Pierce. You know, he needs to continue to improve. Um, the next step for him is to finish. You know, you lead those laps. You look like you're, you, you look the part to be able to win these things. And then the next step will be to get it done, to go win. And, and he's getting there, right? He's, he is so much closer now and this year than he's ever been. He does have some crashes in there. We know that. We've seen big ones. But I think that's part of the learning process. And the difference between 
he being sketchy versus RJ being sketchy is RJ has been around forever. You know, RJ should have figured this out by now, I guess. Like you've got to find a way to take some of that variance out of your riding. Like you can't just keep auguring yourself into the ground year after year after year after year. And we're going on like, I don't know, eight, nine years of this for RJ. So that's the difference where Pierce is only a couple years into this and, and you're seeing incredible improvement. Like he is, he's getting better and better and better. And it's, it's visually there. You can just see it, you know, just your casual fan would be able to watch Pierce and go, man, he's good. I don't, I don't know who that is. Right. Well, he's been around, but yeah, he's much better than he's ever been. So two different dynamics there. Yes. Maybe you could say both of them crash too much and they're both sketchy, but they're both in very different points of their career. And that, that's a, that's an important factor. Like that can't be really overlooked. So good job from Pierce. Um, you know, third place is uh, nothing to sneeze at. And when you look at who he had to contend with, which is Forkner, who's one of the winningest 250 Supercross riders of all time. I think he's at 19 now. Wait, that could be wrong. Maybe it's at 12 now. Um, I think he had a 111 going into uh, to Saturday. But that's a lot of 12 wins is a lot in this class, if that's correct. And uh, and then the Jet, right? We, we know the Jet is he's his own... Uh, kind of uh, ecosphere like he's he's his own deal like he is going to be in my opinion he's going to be the one of the best that's ever done this um, he's got a lot of development still to go but I'm kind of there I'm, I'm there on Jet. I just see things that are impossible to ignore I had one other note on the 250 class Hardy Munoz I mean dude you've got to calm down out there he crashes so much. And I'm sure he's a really nice guy. This isn't a personal attack at all. I don't know him. I have never spoken to him and I don't want it to come off like I'm going after him. But oh my gosh, dude, I don't want to see you hurt yourself really badly. And that's the road you're going down. Like you can't crash the way you're crashing this often and it not bite you and bite you hard. If anybody saw him jump into the net, like I mean, he jumped into the net. Then, if uh, you know, they don't show these guys that often, but I mean, he was crashing in the whoops. He was crashing all over the place all day. And this isn't anything new. This has been going on for years. Remember Daytona a few years ago? He was just crashing every time he touched the track. Um, you watch him battle with Phil, and he's just about to wad it up at all times. I don't, I don't like to see people hurt themselves. It's already, the sport is already dangerous enough without taking chances and pushing the envelope like Hardy does. There's just no longevity in that level, that level of risk taking. It is going to bite you. It's a question of when, and you will hurt yourself crashing that often. Like it's not a, maybe it's not a, well, maybe I can get away with this for No, 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 no. That make no mistake. There is a, like our, you know, a sand going through an hourglass there. Like it's, it's a matter of time. If you keep hitting the dirt like that before it's going to catch up to you. And that's, you know, by proxy, I'm kind of like talking to Hardy here is like, dude, you got to relax a little bit. You've got to find a balance between riding at your limit, which is a good thing, but not going over it because he's way, in my opinion, he's way over his limit almost all the time. And that's why you're seeing him crash so much. Okay, so we're going to jump into the 450 class, but before we do, let's thank these sponsors again. Pirelli, Plum Creek Funding, Guts Racing, Grant Stone Boot, Works Connection, check out that Pro Launch Start Device, Pro Glow Wash. There's a, there was a cool TikTok video going around of uh, Pro Glow Wash on a side-by-side. 
and I was amazed. Um, Ryan over at ProGlow sent that over to me, and it's really cool. I could, uh, it shows in real time what how powerful that wash is for power sports getting the tough dirt off, right? It, the the kind of dirt you go mudding, you you know ride in it's whatever outdoor track. It's muddy, like all kinds of different soils and terrains. You know, Simple Green just doesn't get the job done. So go check out ProGlow Wash as well. Fly racing, and of course, Fast Foundry. Thank you to them. So. 450 class, I mean, this was a, a, an incredibly impressive race by both Chase Sexton and Jason Anderson, right? And, and Anderson gets the nod, Anderson gets the win, but I think you have to really take your hat off to both of them. They were almost identical all day. They were at the top of the board. They were at the top of their heat races. They were, you know, they, they were just up front all day and all afternoon. They were clearly the best two guys at this event. And we'll get into the other guys and what I kind of think went on, but I just wanted to give those two credit at the very beginning of this. I mean, Anderson, this has really been him all year, right? He has been so damn good, but the weekends where he made mistakes ended up being the difference. And take Tomac out of the equation, Anderson was his own worst enemy. He really was. Like there have been weekends where Tomac, I don't think, really had what it takes to beat him. Like, Anderson was just that good, right? And, and we'll never know where Tomac's level of risk was. But Anderson went out and won those races, period, end of story. But the races where he made mistakes, they were really devastating to his championship run. Too many of them. Like, remember all the times he jumps off the track at Anaheim. He gets taken out by Barsha at A1 and gets a 10th. Uh, he jumps off the track in Glendale and crashes pretty hard. Like there was just time after time after time that he has gone down. Like he gets taken out by Barsha at what was that, Indy or Detroit? I think Detroit. That wasn't necessarily his fault. But at the same time, you don't see Tomac putting himself in that situation, right? Tomac doesn't leave the door open or start things with these guys to have things go sideways. So it's just one of those things where Tomac may not have been perfect all year long. But the weekends where he wasn't perfect, he didn't make the, the key mistake that Jason Anderson did. And then when you look up, it's a 40-something point lead with a couple rounds to go. That's how this happens. And it sneaks up on you. You know, you lose five points here. You lose 10 points there. Oh, I got to win. Well, I only got three back. And then the next week, you're, you lose, but you're right there. Great ride. Some, say something like Seattle. Okay, that's fine. But then you have another bad one where you lose 10 again and, and it just snowballs a little bit on you and you're not really paying attention to it because you're in the midst of this series, you're winning some, you're getting second a lot, but then you have these outlier races where you get seventh and you look up and you're like, damn it. You know, and these guys will, they'll do that over the, you know, when the series is done, whether it's them or their team or their coach or whoever will look back and say, okay, how did this get away from us? And it's those outlier races. It's like getting a 10th at A1. You know, you don't realize how devastating that is in the moment because it's just the first race and there's 16 more to go and whatever, you know, all kinds of things are going to happen. But you look back and like, I lost so many points at this round that I didn't need to. I was, he was riding so much better. Like he was on his way to getting third. No question in my mind would he have gotten at least third. Maybe he gets second and gets around Cooper Webb, maybe. But at least he gets third. Instead, he gets a 10th. And you start extrapolating those types of nights 
over and over and over. Just go through the rounds where he had issues and you see how he lost the title. It wasn't speed. It wasn't ability. It was the bad nights. And Ricky Carmichael always talked about that, right? You don't, you don't win the titles on your good nights because everybody's going to have those. You win the title on your bad nights and minimizing damage on those nights. And Tomac was able to do that this year. And Jason Anderson wasn't. And that's why Eli Tomac is going to be your champion this coming Saturday. Chase Sexton, solid ride. I kind of mentioned him already, but this is the kind of rides he needs, okay? If, you, if you're not going to win, it's okay. It's okay to get second. You don't have to push so hard that you end up wrapping your, your motorcycle around a tough block. Like You don't need to do that, right? Find the limit, ride just below it. And for him, luckily, that's good enough to be on the podium every single week right now. Like it, As long as he doesn't shoot himself in the foot, he will be on the podium week in and week out. That's just where I see it. He, he might have some battles, right? If, if Marvin gets in there or something, you know, maybe the podium gets tough, but he will be in the fight for it. He's just that good, period. End of story. He's the only, he is the only one that can take himself out of that conversation, in my opinion. Crashes, bad starts, whatever. He's going to have to do it. I don't think these other guys are good enough to simply ride away from him and, and take him out of podium contention. Uh, Marvin, I mean, he's good at Foxborough, right? I don't know if it's the, the way the dirt is, like the rocky surface. Like, it's very, like, the when it gets hard pack and rocky, like, the base is, is down to the base that's really hard and that all that fluff gets blown off and it's really rocky and all those stones are making it really difficult to feel where the front is. That is very typical of, of a French track, okay? So I don't know if that's what comes into play for Marvin I'm thinking maybe it does because I remember riding with Tortelli a lot and when conditions got like that, he was damn near unbeatable and I could never figure it out. And then I asked him, I'm like, dude, how are you so good at this? Like lots of rocks, really uncertain traction. He's like, oh man, this is what we grew up on. Like we didn't have water tracks. We didn't have prepared tracks at all. So this is what we're used to. Like we got we had to become very good at riding in these conditions. So that all makes sense to me as to why Marvin would be very good at Fox Bros. Just my, my own personal theory, but it is based in fact is that that's how those tracks are. You get south of France. That's how every single track is. Rock hard, slippery, and lots of rocks. So to see him excel in those conditions year after year when we go to Foxborough makes a lot of sense in my mind. Mookie. Decent ride, but almost invisible. And that's weird to say about Mookie. Like, you don't often have a race where Mookie gets fourth and you don't talk about him much. But I, I, that was kind of this day. He wasn't ever really in the mix to win. That wasn't ever really even a, a conversation that went on. But he still moves up, passes guys, passes Tomac, and ends up fourth. So for a guy who is dealing with a knee injury, we don't know how bad it is. They haven't really told us anything. But it's not great. I have been, I guess I haven't been told anything, but I have. I've been told it's not great. And that, that I don't know what necessarily that means. But I did think he looked good this weekend. He was aggressive. You know, I, I don't know if that should be, I should consider him being back to 100% or not. But he was able to ride in a way that I didn't watch him and immediately think that he was injured. And that's all I'm really asking for is like, if I can't visually see an injury, which usually I can because they're, they are less aggressive. Their body language is different. They're scared to put their foot down. 
they're hesitant going into a, into sections that require you to be aggressive. I didn't see any of that. I saw Mookie pushing pretty hard. Uh, so that's a, that's a really positive sign, and hopefully we see him uh, carry this on into outdoors. You always wonder that, right? If a guy has a knee injury, you're wrapping a series up. Instead of starting a new series, does he go get something procedurally done to get that fixed? I don't know. I don't know. It's just something I've been, I've been a little bit worried about, and I don't want to lose him for a Lucas Oil Pro Motocross. Tomac, I don't know what that was. I really don't. Um, you know, if you immediately want to go back to several years ago when he would have these weirdo rides where he kind of got inside his own mind, psyched himself out, started thinking way too much, I guess I have to say that's what it was. I don't have anything else to really point to. Like, there is no other real explanation, and they haven't been forthcoming. They didn't come out and say, yeah, we had some bike issues or what, like, you know, that would be the immediate response if there was something going on, but it it just felt like it was him. And I don't, I can't say I necessarily blame him. You know, he's got this title wrapped up. If he didn't feel comfortable, just back it down. No problem. He's going to win the title this Saturday at his home race in Denver. So if, if something wasn't right, you didn't feel comfortable, you didn't want to crash, maybe Jason Anderson just spooked him and he couldn't, regain his composure yeah whatever it's not that big of a deal i just wish he would come out and kind of say something's like yeah i just wasn't feeling it and backed it down all right no problem you have earned the right to be able to do that you've you've built up this huge points gap and that's the cushion you you've afforded yourself um it's just kind of weird the the uh the silence around it and you go back to those really bad days where he would get 10th and you're just like what and the hell was that? And both indoors and out. There was those days where you're just like, what is he doing out there? That's what it felt like on Saturday. And honestly, he's fortunate that the field is pretty weak. Uh, if, if a bunch of these other guys were healthy, Roxins and all these other guys, Ferrandis, they would have all been around him. Like, he wasn't riding well at all. They would have all passed him in that scenario. I mean, think about all the guys that are hurt, missing, you know, retired, whatever. There's a ton of talent. Dino... You just go down the line, Cincerillo, they're, they're everywhere. Um, so it's part of the series, right? You got to be out there to be a part of it. But at the same time, I don't think even, even on paper, what do you get seventh or eighth or whatever on paper, his result is better than how he rode. Seriously. Like it, it doesn't look good for your serious points leader. I think he got seventh. It was worse than that. Like he he rode really really poorly the second half of the race, and I don't I don't get it. Like I, I know I've already kind of covered this, but I thought he was going to win the race. I really did. If you watch him early, first couple laps, like he's like, I got to go. I'm going to win. I'm going to win. Trying to pass Webb, and then as soon as Anderson made that move, like just stood him up. It wasn't overly aggressive. It wasn't dirty, but he stood him up, and I think it scared him. On some level, and I, I'm hesitant to use the word scared. I don't mean like he was terrified, but I think it just changed his mindset to where he was going like, I'm going to go win this race and end the title right here to, oh man, I got to back it down. Like Anderson's going to take me out and I could blow it. That's, that's what it felt like in the moment. So I don't know. I wish there was more uh, transparency on this and maybe he'll give us some after the series is over. You know, if, if, uh, somebody in the press conference or something, maybe I'll talk to Steve or Weege or one of these guys and see if they can ask him. Once this is done and the pressure's off, 
go back and ask him about Foxborough. Like, what was it? Was it, were you just paranoid about screwing up royally in this championship? And that's what my guess would be. I would just love, uh, love some clarity on that anyway. Cooper Webb, he looked really, really, really frustrated. Like, all caps, really frustrated. I don't know if it's... I, well, I'm gonna, I think it's the chassis with him. I don't think he's happy on the motorcycle. That's what I really attribute this to. I don't know what the answer is because you watch Marv. Marv looked great. And Marv has looked great for a while. So I don't, I don't necessarily blame KTM because they have another guy doing really well. And Mookie is on a very similar, if not identical, chassis doing very well. But the point is, is that Webb's not happy. He doesn't look good. He, he's off the pace. He got pushed around by those guys at the front. He struggled in the whoops. None of this was good, right? He, he went backwards throughout that entire main event, and he tried to fight back. He gave it his best effort. Like, there wasn't any quit in him. He just simply wasn't fast enough. There is no other way to really say it. That's just the facts of it, and I'm sure he would probably, you know, if he was being honest with himself, probably agree. He just was not fast enough on that track, with that chassis, and those whoops, to beat those guys. And that's not condemnation. That's just that's just a factual statement. So I don't know what to make of that. I know they got a lot of work to do. We'll see if he ends up racing Lucas Oil Promotocross or not. I have my doubts. Um, I'm pretty sure he's not, which opens the door for Cairoli, Hurlings, etc. To, to join this series. But they got to figure something out because he can't go into another season like he is right now. Like he is way, way, way off from being the Cooper Webb of 2021 or 2019. Like the, they are way off that level at the moment. So that's it, kind of it for the uh, the Supercross guys. Now, news broke this week that Antonio Antonio Cairoli is going to come over and race the first two, which is awesome. Uh, you know, he's been pretty clear that he's not the same level as he would be if he was racing the World Championship. I think that's not necessarily true. I think he's giving himself a little bit of an out if things don't go well that he can fall back on and say, yeah, I mean, this was always for fun. I didn't do all the work that I would normally do. That, that's, I think that's smart. That's wily by someone who's been around a very long time is to build, build in an excuse already that maybe you need, maybe you don't. But I personally believe that he's working really hard behind the scenes. Uh, the only Tony Cairoli I've ever seen or ever known is one that's really committed and pushes really, really hard to be prepared. And I can't imagine that he's going to come over, race these nationals for the first time ever, and do it half-ass. Why would you do that? Why would you put your name and reputation and all that at stake and not come in as ready as humanly possible? Because other than his personal life, he doesn't have anything else to do. He doesn't have any real responsibility or anything like that where he can't prepare other than maybe he would just didn't do the work, didn't want to. I just don't believe that's reality. I think he's throwing that out there in case things don't go to plan. He can fall back on that and say, well, I told you guys from the very beginning this was for fun. I wasn't at the level that I was in world championship, any of those things, right? It's just this, this really smart out for him if he needs it. I don't think he's going to need it personally. I don't, but, um, you know, you, you could say it's, it's weak or whatever to like put that on the front end. I think it's smart. 
because now if he does great, awesome. Like no one's even going to mention that again. Like he's just going to be running around the podium and maybe he finishes out this series. But if he doesn't, no problem. I told you guys already what this was about. Now, I think for him to do the rest of the series, there are a lot of factors. One, does Jeffrey Hurlings come over and news on him as he is going to ride this week for the first time? And I think we'll get our decision this week. I really do. I think if he rides and it's reasonable, you know, pain tolerance, he feels like he can progress from here. I think you'll see an announcement come out by the weekend or at latest next week that he's going to race in America. I really believe that. If he rides this week and he can't do it, it's too painful. He feels personally that he's pretty far away from being able to consistently put days of riding together. Then I think you'll see them come out and say, we're out. We're going to go, you know, we'll be back in the world championship when we can make it. And that that's really what it comes down to because I don't believe you'll see Jeffrey Hurlings come into this series wildly unprepared. Like he rides a week or two before the series starts and he's just going to make a go of it. I don't believe you'll see that from him. I think in that scenario, they would rather him heal, take his time, come back to MXGP when he's good and ready and ready to win races. That would make more sense than forcing his way into the U.S. You know, Lucas Oil Pro Motocross Series unprepared, unready, doesn't do well, takes a bunch of heat. Everybody's, you know, giving him a bunch of crap and USA, this and that. Like, you know, that was, is what would go on. And he would just be wildly frustrated. That's asking for a horrible experience. And I think they know that. I think they're smart enough to get that. So it's a really pivotal week in the story of Jeffrey Hurlings coming to America. So we'll, we'll see what happens there, but that's what's going on behind the scenes. Now to finish the Caroli thing, I think there are a lot of situational decisions that have to be made. If Tony's going to race the whole series here, I think that Jeffrey has to be ruled out, for one. I think KTM has to decide to pay him a reasonable amount, which I know that's been an ongoing conversation between those two, is that Tony wants to get paid and KTM's like, well, we thought this was kind of for fun, right? There's there's two different perspectives on this project there. And then... Most importantly, it comes down to how Tony's doing. You know, if, if Tony's getting 10th, which I don't believe is going to happen, I'll be the first to tell you that. I don't think that's what's in the cards. If he's getting 10th, I think it's two and done, and he's back in uh, Italy, you know, in early June. But if he's, re- if he's getting podiums, if he's top five, if he's a, he realistically in the picture to be battling for the wins and like, you know, Tomac's not 45 seconds in front of him or whatever, whoever you think, Ferrandis, blah, blah, blah. If if he is a contender, I think he stays. I do. And that's obviously you have to work hurlings into that picture as well, right? There's, there's a lot happening. And that's why I say this decision will be situational because there are a lot of moving chess pieces that haven't really made their play yet. And we're just going to have to see how this goes. I don't think he has to worry about deciding for now. Focus on getting prepared for the first two. Let them sort out what they're doing with Jeffrey Hurlings. You race those first two and then, or maybe even after the first one, like you go out to Paula. I think he's in the top five at Paula. I really do. I think uh, a track like that suits him. It'll be ruddy and it's, it's a tough track to kind of go fast on, which the Euros do really well on difficult to go fast on tracks. If that, that, I know that doesn't make a lot of sense, but the average person you go ride Paula on National Day, it's really difficult. Remember Chris Kiefer when he tried 
to race Paul on the national, how tough it was for him, how far off he was. That's what it's like going to Paula. Well, the Euro guys face that all the time. They are so good at difficult conditions. You know, if it's a perfect check, if it's like um, Bud's Creek or something like that where everybody can go fast, I don't know. I don't really have a strong prediction, but I think on the tracks where it's tougher to go fast, like Paula, I think Hiroli's right in the mix. I think uh, he's going to give these guys all they want especially the guys that are coming off of Supercross and don't really have their motocross legs underneath them yet, I think they're going to have a real problem on their hands with Tony Cairoli. So we'll see. Uh, I want to touch on MotoGP a little bit before we sign off on this week's podcast. I'm not a MotoGP, MotoGP expert. I want to put that on the front end. I do watch it. I do like it. I do know some of these guys, and I have been to these races in person. So that's about the uh the list of my credentials but i like having a voice on it i like uh sharing some of the sometimes i get some insider information from talking to these guys and whatever but if you did watch it you saw that fabio quattararo is back i mean that he needed that really badly uh this is a race he won last year but it hasn't gone well for him this year the yamaha has looked like it's really far off at times and very worrisome you know, the silly season's going on over there, and Yamaha's got their hands full trying to re-sign Fabio to stay because the bike has been so bad. You know, if you're Fabio, you're defending world champion, you have to, if you're going to sign a long-term deal with Yamaha, you have to have confidence that they're going to deliver a competitive bike. And if you don't think that they can, you're not going to stay there because he can go pretty much wherever he wants. I don't know if Repsol Honda has the money. I guess, I guess anything's possible, right? They could go find the money. But they pay Mark Marquez so much. I don't know on a financial side or a competitive side if they would want to bring Fabio into that fold. You know, Marquez could flip out possibly if they did something like that. But if you're KTM, if you're Ducati, and you have any shot at getting Fabio, you you go all in. Like, absolutely. Everything it takes, you get hand him a blank check. And, on you know, if you're Yamaha, you do the same thing. You say, here you go. You fill in the number within reason, of course, but we, they can't afford to lose Fabio. Like if you look at Yamaha's prospects, if they lose that guy, not to mention he's your defending world champion, what does that say about their program? That basically means that he has no faith in Yamaha. And why would anybody else who wants to be a title contender go there if the defending champ doesn't have faith? So it's a really precarious spot for Yamaha. Personally, I think he stays. I think this weekend went a long way to give him some confidence and reassurance that Yamaha could sort this thing out. And we're going into a bunch of tracks that really suit the Yamaha a little bit better than the, the previous few tracks. So look for Fabio's results to improve uh, pretty steadily from here, or at least in the short term. And I, I, I think he's your champion again. I really do. You look at all the other issues, like Pecco's basically out of it, Jorge Martin out of it. I mean, there's so many guys that are just ruining their chances all, all on their own. You know, Brad Bender crashes this weekend. Um, it's, it's been a, almost a comedy of errors by these MotoGP guys. I think the biggest risk to Fabio is Alex Renz. And I personally just don't think Renz can get it done. He crashes way too much over the course of a season, in my opinion, to be world champion. But I would have never thought Joanne Mir was going to be champion either. So I'll... Uh, I'll hold off condemning Renz's chances a little bit 
But from what I saw this weekend, I think uh, I think Fabio is just too consistent, and uh, I think he he will get it done again. He's just been there and done it. I thought Marquez would be better. He doesn't look like he's ready to win yet. I think the the Honda still has a long way to go to get back to to allow Mark to be his best. And you know the the points are just going to slip away. He's already missed races and all that stuff. So yeah, it's just shaping up really really nicely for Fabio here. I mentioned Mark. I expected more. I, I really did. I thought you watch him on Friday, fastest in qualifying, all those things. You watch him battling for pole position on Saturday. He got his lap taken away, which is ridiculous in my opinion. I, I hate that rule. But I thought in the race he would be a lot better than that. You know, to be battling with your little brother and have to pass him on the last lap, that's not what Honda signed up for, right? Honda's paying him like 20 million euros a year or something, maybe 25 million euros a year. Like it's an insane amount of money. It's the highest deal in MotoGP history by a lot. I want to say it's 25 million euros. Uh, That's crazy money. And that basically when you're getting paid that much, you got to win. Like there is no alternative. You need to be winning or at least battling for wins week in and week out, period. And then you're still probably overpaid at that point. Uh, So I'm not saying there's pressure on Mark because he has a four-year deal. But he certainly is probably putting a lot of pressure on himself. He knows how much he's being paid. He knows what the expectations are. And that is to be winning. And he's not winning. He wasn't even close this weekend at a race that I really thought he would be at. He's ridden there a lot. He had taken like a CBR 600 and a World Superbike and a few things down to Portimao and had been riding. Like he had this track dialed. That's why he was so fast on Friday is because he had a ton of time on this track and then that didn't translate into the race on Sunday. And he needs, it's easy for me to sit here and say he needs to be better. But I think, you know, without, I'm not trying to be negative towards him, but I think he knows he needs to be better. I don't think he's happy about running around six, seven, eight. And that, that's, I think that's fair criticism for a guy who is the highest paid rider in the paddock. Uh, Jack Miller, man, I felt so bad for him. You know, he and Joanne Mir don't like each other, right? They had huge issues last year. And then they're pushing, battling, and Jack takes them both out. And you wonder if that's not Joanne Mir there, does Jack push that hard into the corner or does Joanne Mir push that hard into the corner? They basically forced each other in there too hard. Jack has to grab a handful of front brake and loses the front, takes Mir out. And it just felt like they were a victim of their own competitiveness, right? Where if it was someone else, say it's, it's uh, Jack and Pecco there or Jack and, I don't know, pick anybody. Even Rins, like another Suzuki guy. I don't think they push that hard in there. I think maybe they give themselves a little bit more room than they did. And I think that those hard feelings, and I, I hesitate to use the word hatred, but I think that dynamic caused this crash. Not 100%, but it, it was a contributing factor to the crash. I was very happy to see, you know, Mir and Miller talk after, like, Miro had to be super pissed, right? Like, of course he is. But he didn't freak out. I think he wanted to. You see him go over to to Jack. I think he was about to. And I think Jack was like, this is my fault, Mike. I'm so sorry, right? And that that's what needed to happen is like, guys, let cooler heads prevail here. Jack was in the wrong. He took you both out. It was a racing incident. It's not like he meant to knock you guys down. And I'm sure Jack was mortified, and I'm sure he apologized about a hundred times. You know, he can't see because they have helmets on. Um, but I, I just, I thought it was cool that they, 
weren't screaming at each other and, and nobody took a swing or did anything stupid. Bastianini, right? I, I don't know a lot about Enea Bastianini, right? But I do know that this series is a pressure cooker if you are the points leader. And for Bastianini to be leading after this long, he wins the opener, all those things, I was kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop. And it finally did, right? He crashes. Um, I just thought this was coming. There's too much pressure too soon on a guy who hasn't been in this spot. And I didn't think this was sustainable. You go back to a guy like Maverick Vinales a few years ago, looked like he was on fire to win the title, falls apart. I personally kind of think that's what's going to happen for, with Bastianini. And I don't have a vested interest. I don't care. I don't know him at all. I don't like him or dislike him or anything. Um, I just think these other guys are going to figure it out and he's going to revert back to the mean a little bit. And that doesn't mean he can't win a race or two or whatever, but I think you're going to see more variants. You're going to see crashes. You're going to see more bad results come in over the course of the season versus what we've seen for the beginning, which was all of these super strong results where he was super consistent as the tracks get more difficult for the Ducati. I think his results will reflect that as well. Now keep in mind, he's on the GP 21 and that bike looks phenomenal, right? You remember how good Pecco and Jack and those guys were, Jorge Martin, on that bike last year. That's the bike Bastianini's on. So his bike actually looks better than what the GP22 is for the moment. I think Ducati guys will figure that bike out as we go. But that's a big part of why Bastianini was so good. He was on a proven product that was damn near perfect coming into the season. So I don't think that that is sustainable because these other guys are going to get their bikes better and better and better where that GP21 is going to kind of stay constant. It's not going to continue to improve. Last note, Renz, what a ride, man. You know, I touched on him briefly talking about the championship, but to come from last to fourth, that was great. That he really deserves a ton of credit for that. Um, Kind of went under the radar, but I mean, he was 23rd on the grid and he ends up fourth and uh, he's just very sneaky right now. I personally don't have him as a champion, but if he does find a way to get it done, it will be because of rides like Portimao, where nobody's really talking about it. He didn't end up on the podium. You know, he doesn't get to spray the champagne, but you look at the the damage that he minimized going from 23rd to 4th, those are championship days. So just something to keep in mind as we roll on here. Friends becomes more of a story. We can look back on this Portimao as one of the reasons why. So that's it for this week. Thank you to everybody for listening. Uh, we'll be, uh, I'll be in this Boston area this week and then headed straight to Denver. Actually get to fly home on Saturday night after the race. Not that any of you care, but for me, that's a huge deal. Very, very excited to be home on a Saturday night and uh, wake up in my own bed on Sunday. For those of you who travel for work or spend a lot of time on the road, you know how valuable those mornings are when you can just wake up and enjoy your morning without having to go anywhere. So very much we'll... Uh, yeah, I'm going to enjoy that. I'm going to enjoy this week up here in uh, the Boston area. Spring is here. It's a little chilly, but still pretty nice week comparatively. Do some work, see some of our WPS dealers, get over to Denver, enjoy that race, and uh, head on home. So we'll talk to you next Sunday. I'll knock this podcast out next week and get it out earlier than I did this week. And thank you to all for listening. Uh, thank you to all. Thank all of you for listening. And thank you to the sponsors. Um, wouldn't be possible without them. See you.